China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Joe Fiesmith, the Professor of International Relations and Political Science at Boston's University's Party School. Today we'll be discussing his new book, Rethinking Chinese Politics, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Joe, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as a first question, I wanted to ask you for a a 35,000-foot evaluation. You've been at this business of studying Chinese politics for, for a very long time, and you've just finished this book, which is a really fantastic survey of, of Chinese politics, you know, post Mao to now. But I wanted to ask you first for an assessment of the state of the field of Chinese politics. Is the accumulated stock of knowledge and the creation of, of newer methodological tools, in your opinion, leading to, you know, better understanding and analysis of, of China's political system? Or are we still have some critical gaps? You're trying to get me in uh, trouble with all my friends. You know, I, I think there are some things that the field does really well and other things that maybe we don't do quite so well. What we do really well, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of some, some recent books, is kind of where the party state meets society sorts of questions. And I'm thinking of uh, Don Mattingly's uh, The Art of Political Conflict, that sort of a book, or Jennifer Penn's uh, Welfare for Autocrats. Uh, these are, I think, really state of the field. They use new methodology, both statistical and in in, um, Mattingly's case, uh, on the ground field research. I guess Jennifer does that as well, but she's more into more statistical analysis. You know, Mary uh, Gallagher has written on uh, how the legal institutions, the use of them, affect the people that are trying to use them. Things like that. I think that we, um, you know, some of the web scraping technologies, this opens up fascinating ways of studying Chinese politics. So some things are really, I think, doing very, very well. Lagging behind, people tend not to write about the party, how it works. There, There is a lot of writing about trying to figure out promotion systems. And that, again, employs a lot of statistical effort, but not so much how is that person chosen. And it's really difficult, maybe it's impossible, because you don't know who was not chosen. You only know who was chosen. Why did they choose candidate A over candidate B? You just can't get a handle on that sort of thing. And of course, elite politics, which uh, I have a particular interest in, you know, you've never been able to go to China and uh, interview Politburo members or their secretaries and say, gee, do you think uh, so-and-so had a good week this week? Uh, you, you can't do that sort of research. And, you know, I kind of blame this on American political science because they've moved away from the study of elite politics. And if you're a young political scientist trying to get a job in the Department of Political Science and you say, well, I study elite politics, there are going to be a lot of eyebrows raised around the table. And I think that's one of the sort of pressures that young scholars face And yet, I think that elite politics remain absolutely central to how China works as a political system. 
Yeah, and certainly, if anyone was in doubt of that, Comrade Xi Jinping has helped remind us uh, how, how much leaders and leadership and, and, and uh, leadership politics matters. The title of your book is, is Rethinking Chinese Politics, and I, I wanted to dwell on the word rethinking. When I was reading it over the past couple of weeks, I was, you know, before I picked it up, I was wondering, is this you rethinking Chinese politics, or is this a call for, for the, the royal we to rethink Chinese politics? And, and what do we need to rethink? I think that the issue is that we've been looking at the Chinese political system as more institutionalized and less personalized than I think it is. And, you know, it's, you see books and articles coming out and repeating the, that China's political system is institutionalized, collective decision-making, and now you have people saying, of course, that with Xi Jinping, we're moving away from institutionalization. But I don't think that that's really looking very deeply at what the foundation of that supposed institutionalization was and how she is changing things and how he isn't changing things. And so I think we do need a collective rethink of what's going on in China. And can I ask, when you began sketching out this book, why the focus on Deng through Xi, as opposed to taking a more sort of recent approach or just focusing on the Xi administration? What were you hoping to get at by, by looking at a through line that starts right after the death of Mao till now? Well, I have to say that it was really fascinating to do that, to look at these four major administrations over the course of the last four decades and how they're similar and different from each other. And one of the questions that I really had in mind in, in writing this was if, you know, for me, institutionalization implies several things, but one is the ability to shift power from one administration to another, that you are inheriting an institutionalized position. And I think that one of the things that comes out of this discussion is how each leader needs to build his own political power. Nobody can hand it to you. And that leads you to think about, so what are the critical positions? If you, all of a sudden you find yourself at the head of the table, who do you need to put in that chair that runs organization or propaganda or whatever so that you can hold on to your power? And so that leads you into really discussions of how power is accumulated and consolidated. And can I ask you to raise a comparative example? How dissimilar is that from other <clears throat> types of political system? And maybe even just to bring the point closer to home, when you become a new president, you inherit an office, sure. You inherit a set of constitutional powers, many of these don't differ leader to leader, right? It doesn't matter who you are, President Trump or President Biden. But then there is a great deal where personality matters. And we can think back across presidents and indeed their administrations and imagine weaker or stronger ones. Wouldn't a, a U.S. president also be thinking about who to install in what position? And a Robert Lighthizer at USTR may have more growl and grit than putting someone else in. And that will mean that the agenda will move forward. So is there a... a how much similarity is there or dissimilarity between other types of political systems and in terms of these key questions about you need to, to stand up with your shoulders you know, out to be able to really push through policy? Well, I think that's a good question. And I think it, every president does rely on people that he or she, still I'm afraid only he has known from the past. So a Ronald Reagan brings in his California friends and a, a Jimmy Carter brings in his 
Georgia, France, and, and so forth. So that is certainly an important part of it. How you approach people on the Capitol Hill is all part of that. But that's all within an institutional framework that has been pretty well defined. Uh, obviously, over the last four years, we've had a good bit of norm breaking, and that is truly something, I think, exceptional to the American system. In the Chinese system, it's much more about centralization. We try to find allies. It might be in USTR. It might be in other departments of government. It might be on Capitol Hill. But the idea that you need to centralize power because you might lose it, and it's not impossible in the Chinese system that somebody would lose power midterm. Zhao Ziyang, Hu Yaobang, people of this sort. So one of the real characteristics, I think, that comes out of this study is that there is a strong tendency of the need, really, to centralize power. So, for instance, Jiang Zemin came into power after Tiananmen 1989, came into position, I should say. Deng Xiaoping called him the core. But when do we say that he was really the core? Probably not till 1994-95. And th by that time, Deng Xiaoping has purged the military to give Jiang Zemin a chance of building his own military apparatus. Thank God we don't have that problem in the United States. You know, this idea that he truly has put people in position. Elders have died. He's been able to appoint his own people. That allows him to consolidate power. In fact, as you know, I go on and say Jiang Zemin was so good at consolidating power that Hu Jintao never really was able to grasp the brass ring. Maybe this is a good point to dig into the core thesis that you're pushing, which is, I think, quite quite interesting and provocative. And it is this tension or opposition, indeed, between the Leninist structure of the Communist Party and the possibilities or prospects for institutionalism. And you talk, I think, very persuasively, and, and this is where I think the historical lens helps, thinking about efforts that Deng Xiaoping pushed forward to try to split the difference. Right. Deng was never an, uh, he was not an anti-Leninist by any stretch, and, and he wanted very much to maintain the resiliency and integrity of the party. But whether at his, his August 18th, 1980 speech, where he talked about the necessity of and distinguishing the responsibilities between the party and the government, or, or Zhao Ziyang's 1987 speech, where he articulates this, I had always thought until really reading your book that they just failed at separating the government and the party because of, you know, political events overtook it. You lay out a thesis, which I wanted to ask you to explore, which is actually there's just there's a fundamental incompatibility between the institutionalization of power, separation of party and government, and the basic exigencies of China's Leninist structure. So can you just lay out for us, why don't those things sit together in, in the way that many of us think that they could or should, but just haven't yet? What Leninist systems do, they're mobilizational structures. And so that's, they're good at revolution. They're good at mass movements. And, you know, we see that up to the present day in China's effort to fight the COVID infection, right? Whatever you think of uh, Xi Jinping's efforts to fight it, they were draconian. The United States could have done more, but we could never lock down I mean, truly lock down the country. And that involves, in China's case, you're moving bureaucrats all over the place. Remember when um, the Politburo member went down to Wuhan and said, we're going to find in 72 hours, we're going to talk to test everyone in the city. This is a city of 11 million. Good luck, right? 
And I don't know whether they accomplished it or came close to accomplishing it, but the idea that you could assign enough bureaucrats to go literally house to house, is anybody infected here? Let me take your temperature. Da, da, da. You don't have that sort of mobilizational capacity in the United States. You know, China does have that. The trouble, of course, is that there's very little restraint on that. And that gets you into things like personnel issues or, God forbid, talking about Uyghurs in Xinjiang. You know, nobody is going to challenge a decision on human rights or, or many other things in a court. If you don't have third-party enforcement, how can you really build institutions? And that's where I think that the strengths of an institutionalized system are, are stronger than those of a mobilizational system. Other non-Leninist authoritarian systems have the same problem of not institutionalizing power. What's the distinct spin on the ball or flavor of a Leninist system? Right, so authoritarianism or illiberalism, I mean, Putin doesn't run a, a, a Leninist system, and yet there's very few institutional constraints on power, certainly over his leadership tenure. So what's distinct about the Leninist flavor of that? Well, authoritarian systems differ tremendously one from the other. So it's really hard to talk about authoritarian systems in general. You know, Putin is a very strong authoritarian leader, in many ways very personalistic. And, uh, you know, Indonesia is not so much. You just have this incredible variation. You can presumably invite more people into or expel people from that inner core, more or less on the whim of the leader. This is where the Leninist system is more rigid. You know, you only have a certain number of positions. You can manipulate these to a certain extent. It's easier to manipulate who occupies the positions than it is the positions themselves. You know, you have a Politburo Standing Committee, and you're going to have seven to nine people. That's one place where that was manipulated uh, under Jiang Zemin, who expanded and then contracted the um, Politburo Standing Committee. It was actually under Hu Jintao, but I assume that the expansion and contraction was done by Jiang Zemin. But for the most part, that's not done. You, you, you have a certain structure. You have, you know, you need to have a uh, somebody in charge of propaganda, organization, public security, and so forth. There are only so many positions, and that tends to structure your politics. You need to control a certain number of those positions, but you can't just do this willy-nilly. So there is a tension between the personalized power and the Lenin's structure. How do we distinguish between a norm and an institution in a prospective sense? If I went up with a stick and poked it, how would I know if I'm poking a norm or, 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 or an institution? Obviously, retrospectively, you know, and undoubtedly at the 20th Party Congress, we're going to see that, you know, that these were norms over leadership succession and not institutions. But prospectively, how the heck would I know what I'm looking at? Well, I think that that's where a lot of our analyses of China maybe went a bit astray in the pre Xi Jinping era. We took things that were norms and assumed that they would continue indefinitely into the future. And I think that that was a possibility. I think we tended to ignore some of the dysfunctions of the party. So, for instance, you're talking about succession issues. Well, two things. Hu Jintao was a weak leader because he could not control those critical positions. Jiang Zemin, as sometimes you 
refer to him as the mother-in-law over there. He's retired, but he does interfere, particularly on personnel issues. So that's what I mean by not being able to grasp the brass ring. Xi Jinping looked at some of the dysfunctions in the party, including, you know, the uh, Bo Lai as a potential rival, uh, challenging the selection of Xi as the core leader, looking at the tremendous corruption that had been building up, looking at all the factions and dysfunctionality of the party. And I think he was able to persuade people that you needed to crack down on corruption. And I think he probably was given a mandate to do so. I think he overran that mandate by quite a bit. And one of the things that he's done, I think successfully, is get the retirees out of politics. And so, you know, he's able to really change the working dynamics of the party. And that's something that shows uh, what some of the flexibility of the party, some of the um, shift in balances within the party. And so he's able to break up some of the uh, what, what were norms and show us that they were more facades than really norms. A non-falsifiable question, but that means you're free to answer it any way, any way you want. I, I, in trying to understand that last piece, or, or maybe the Xi Jinping piece, there's a convincing story, and you laid it out, and you laid it out in the book on on sort of the the situation or the what the party was confronting on the eve of Xi Jinping's accession, right? And you walked through the period of 2008 to, to 2012, and you had this pretty remarkable series of internal and external events, whether that's color revolutions, whether that's Boshi Lai, you've got the Wenzhou train crash in 2011, you have this whole stack of events that occur, which create an environment that Xi Jinping enters into. One of the things I've never been clear on is, does the system make the man or the man make the system? And specifically, was Xi Jinping able to, you know, move quickly, fast, aggressively, eradicate, you know, de jure and de facto constraints on his own power, utilize CCDI in a way that previous leaders hadn't done because he was so skilled and saw a lane that others weren't. In other words, was he sort of an LBJ-like political prodigy who knew how to work the system? Or was the system so malleable and non-institutionalized that really, if it wasn't Xi Jinping, it just would have been someone else who would have come along and been able to manipulate the system? Where do you come down on those? And I don't mean to make it a binary. It certainly can be a mixture. Well, it is a mixture, of course. You know, one of the things that you're right to focus on is how quickly Xi Jinping was able to move quite decisively to uh, exert his own power. And his use of the Central Discipline Inspection Commission, it's never been politicized to that degree, at least not in this post-reform era that we've been talking about. Even before the 18th Party Congress, there was a a man who was associated with, I don't want to throw out a lot of names, Li Li Chun-Chung, who would become the first tiger to fall. And he was arrested August or September of 2012. And so... I think that they probably pumped him for a great deal of information on networks of corruption in Sichuan. When you go after Li Chunchang, the reason that that's important is it's directly traceable back up to Zhou Yongkang. And, you know, less than a month after the party congress ends, they are able to arrest Li Chunchang. And Zhou Yongkang has to know that he's the target. So Xi Jinping 
clearly at that time, at the time of the 18th Party Congress, already had a mandate or permission or however you want to phrase it to go after Zhou Yong Kang. And the only way I think you can do that, this is a retired Politburo Standing Committee member. You do have a norm, uh, an important norm, that you will not go after Politburo Standing Committee members, retired or not retired. And yet, so Xi Jinping had to have accumulated a great deal of evidence and taken it to those elders one by one and said, this guy's got to go. And gotten some sort of a mandate to do so. That is working the system. It's also playing on the very real fear that the CCP could, like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, simply collapse. The threat of peaceful evolution was on everybody's mind. And, you know, it's hard to judge whether that threat was real or whether Xi Jinping is simply playing on that threat, I think call it 50-50, a bit of each. But basically he's saying, if we don't go after these guys, the party's cooked. I've always been jealous of Susan Shirk's book title, Fragile Superpower. That hits the nail on the head. It's more appropriate today than when she wrote the book. Great book. I love it. In any case, that's certainly working the system, but it's also born of a confidence that comes with being a princeling. So the personal bio does blend with the system here. I don't think a Hu Jintao type figure could have done that. That was the uh, the old split between the shopkeepers and the store owners, the princeling store owners versus the the Hu Jintao like, uh, you know, shopkeepers. Um, just to dwell for a second on the mandate issue, because it does come up a lot as an explanation. Again, we're all scratching for these explanations for how did he move so quickly out of the gate? And I just wanted to ask if you just dwell for a, a minute more on this. It, it also has been kind of a, a, a catch-all explanation for, well, of course he moved so quickly he had a consensus to. One of the questions I want to ask you, though, is you would have to have imagined that if folks knew precisely how far he was going to push established power bases, of which Joe Yong Kong is a recently retired uh, standing committee member, he he ain't, you know, he ain't weak spaghetti here. So you have to imagine that there would have been much, much more pushback very early on if folks had known the type of general secretary that Xi Jinping um, was likely to be to become or how far he was going to push or how many iron rice bowls were going to be broken. I wanted to ask you if, if you had any sense on when when does a leader tip, and I realize it's a continuum, and it's a little bit like saying, when does someone go, you know, as a kid is growing, when do they, what, what, what's the inch at which they precisely become tall? It's hard to say, but I wanted to know when you think Xi Jinping didn't need the consensus anymore. At what point was he the Iba show and had transcended the, the constraints that, that he faced? Was it the 19th Party Congress? Was it 2015? Is it still happening? What's your sense? Well, you know, Zhou Yong Kang was a very powerful symbol. If he had gone only after Zhou Yong Kang, you'd say, okay, you got rid of one bad apple, maybe a really bad apple, but okay, everything else seems to fall into place. Then when you move on to Xu Tsai Ho and Guo Bushong, vice chairs of the Central Military Commission, organizationally, they're treated like Politburo Standing Committee, same level. You Again, I think you had to have a mandate from the original mandate, a second one, whatever, to go after that. When you can go after the military in that fashion, 
that's something really new and different. So you've taken down the equivalent of three members of the Politburo Standing Committee. You go on through the, the list of, uh, uh, obviously, Ling Ji Hua sort of falls on his own knife. But, you know, that's a very powerful figure, too. He's running the general office. Uh, he's lining up people to be on the Central Committee. You know, and then you go after the entire party apparatus of Shanxi province. It's really a remarkable story. Uh, then you go after the, the Communist Youth League. Wow. You know, you've pretty well cleaned house within, what, uh, two years? So if we were thinking about a, a consensus that Jiang Zemin would have had in 1989, we can imagine who, who in, the, in the smoky room, who would have been there, right? It's, it's Chen Yun, it's Deng Xiaoping, it's, it's Li Xianyan, it's, you know. What does the smoky room look like in 2012, though? You've got an outgoing general secretary who doesn't have a ton of street cred. Jiang Zemin is alive, but certainly and in, in, in powerful. But who, who else would have been in the room? Who grants that consensus to Xi Jinping, do you think? Well, that would have had to have included people like Zhu Rongji, Li Peng, people of that sort that were um, retired from the... So it's, it's, still, it's still likely elders in the party rather than... I, I think so, uh, that they would have been, at least that they would have been a powerful constituency. And, you know, again, there's so much... You, you want to wait for the next dynasty so you can look back at the files on this one and find out what really, really happened. You hope they kept very good records, uh, memcoms or something. But, you know, I think that Hu Jintao was very, very frustrated with the role that Jiang Zemin played throughout his 10 years there. And so I think that Hu Jintao would have been very cooperative, maybe not realizing this was going to come back and haunt a lot of the CYL too. But maybe he'd even be willing to do that. I think that Hu Jintao really wanted to bring down a lot of the Jiang Zemin people. And, you know, so you, you can build a consensus of that. And then, you know, one of the interesting things is the 18th Party Congress, Xi Jinping doesn't come out of that looking all that strong. So he's going around that Politburo Standing Committee. He's creating new rooms to meet in. And obviously the CDIC is the most important of those rooms. And when he's proven that he can go after anybody, then I think people fall into line very quickly. I think another smart move in retrospect that Xi Jinping made in, you know, in 2014, tw late 2013, is operationalizing this, this concept of national security because it has given him really the keys to the kingdom. It's a little bit like the global war on terror, where when concerns about terrorism are operative, you know, here in the United States, it's a way to move things quickly. And I, and I think to me, that's, that's something that I didn't appreciate till really much later when you began to see, and I think now it's everywhere. I mean, national, to me, real actual Xi Jinping thought is national security. It is wrapping a whole governance vision around national security. But I think in 2014, he, you know, they create the National Security Commission. They announced this, this April 15th, National Security Day, and then you just start seeing every a lot. You know, Xi Jinping makes these quotes of financial security is national. You know, national security, economic security is national security, cybersecurity is national security. So he makes these pronouncements, and they they seem to get this tailwind because he has attached these to sort of national security regime stability. So so I, you know that seems to me another effective tool that he forged and has used quite quite aggressively. 
Well, I think that that's true. Uh, and, you know, I th part of this, of course, precedes Xi Jinping. My reading of the situation is that after the U.S. bombed the uh, Chinese embassy in Belgrade, that's when you got the discussion on this Taoguangyang Hui. Maybe we shouldn't hide and bide anymore. And I think that uh, that comes out of the national security apparatus in general. Those people, maybe for understandable reasons, really do not like the United States. They really regard us as a threat. And so I think that Xi Jinping builds on that, and that's one of his natural constituencies. And so, yes, you have the threat of the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was played on very carefully, uh, well done in those early years. So CPSU has been gone for 22 years. We think about it every day. Boy, I remember the movie they put out almost had me in tears. They were on the verge of having the most perfect union. Somehow it didn't work. In any case, and then, of course, the, the color revolutions in Ukraine, Georgia, Kazakhstan, which are all attributed to the United States and to civil society. And, you know, so you, you have a threat environment that is both real, but is also imagined and used. And so then, yes, you can move a lot of things when you have that threat environment. Uh, another speculative question, and, and I've just got a few more and then I'll, I'll let you go. But next fall, I think we're assuming, barring some you know unforeseen event, that um, Xi Jinping will take a third term. Less speculation about personnel rotations and actually more a question about the substance and style of Xi's rule as a third term general secretary. I guess the question is, are, are we already seeing the playbook now? And is, is a, a third term Xi like a, like a second term Xi or does that signal a, a far more unconstrained leader who may be far more risk tolerant given now that he has proven fundamentally he doesn't have any real meaningful constraints? There is a chance, a small chance, I think, but a chance that Xi Jinping may step down. If he does, he has to recreate the role of the elders, you know, ruling from behind the screen. I assume that he will not step down in part because He's obviously made a lot of enemies, very powerful enemies. And if he steps down, what's to stop somebody else from doing to him what he did to Jiang Zemin or others? So I think that he, he will stay for a third term. And I think if he stays for a third term, there's no reason he won't stay for a fourth. I don't know. Can't see that far ahead. But he seems to be recreating all the mistakes of the Maoist period lifelong tenure, concentration of authority, all these sorts of things. He wants to be there. Well, the the, the, next, the calendar is that you've got to have the 20th Party Congress next year, followed by the Winter Olympics. And then I'm not sure what's really important on the calendar other than Taiwan. And at least some people argue that Xi Jinping said he needed a third term in order to solve the Taiwan issue. Whether or not that is true, whether or not he can do anything about it, that's the period where I'm worried about the Taiwan issue. And uh, I still do not think that he, he is going to use military force. I think the whole strategy has always been to show Taiwan that, look, at the U.S. can't come in and save you. The military is strong enough. If they hit their head against the steel wall, they'll break their heads and all that. At any case, 
and convince Taiwan that it has no choice. I can't imagine, you know, with the Hong Kong example, you're not only saying one country, two systems, you're saying one country. So I, I think that the tensions between the United States and China are likely to become yet greater in that period after the 20th Party Congress and the Winter Olympics. So I think we have some very tense days ahead of us. Final few questions. Um, I wanted to ask you, going back to our initial discussion, you know, a half hour ago about some methodological issues, at least in the popular discourse, we tend to have a pretty narrow set of kind of paradigms for thinking about the, the Communist Party. And so the one that I just see is this pendulum swing between, you know, decline atrophy on the one hand to sort of resilience on the other. And, and this can change event to event. And I'll put myself here, I'll perform seppuku myself, because I remember early in COVID-19, late January, early February, I remember thinking, these are the pathologies of the political system that Xi Jinping has created, right? It's foot dragging, it's, you know, lower level officials are, are hiding the truth, Beijing is, is censoring. And, and seven or eight months later, I was changing my tune and saying, ah, this shows the resiliency of the party, their mobilizational capabilities. So in, in six months, I, I myself traveled the distance of that pendulum from decline to, to resilience. But it strikes me that that's, that's really the dominant way of thinking about the party. And yet there are undoubtedly maybe better ways or additional ways that we can be we can be thinking about it. So I wanted to get your thoughts on just that analytical framework, which seems to be dominant here of, you know, right after the Cold War, it was looking about how communist systems were going to emerge and become more democratic. Then there was the authoritarian resilience narrative. And it still seems to me that the authoritarian resilience narrative is driving most of how we are trying to understand the party. Anything good, bad, or, or any suggestions on how we can improve? Well, you know, just listening to your example of Wuhan, the foot dragging is very much part of the same system that gives you that resilience, gives you that mobilization. Lower level people aren't going to tackle this issue because it could create problems. But when the top says move, they move. Same system, two aspects of it created by the same phenomenon, I think. Going back again to borrow Susan Shirk's title, Fragile Superpower, I think that the party really has certain pathologies that weaken it. So when you look at factionalism, Xi Jinping has attacked Tuan Tuan Ho Ho, all these little factions. Why does that occur? It occurs because individual cadres at different levels of the system are trying to protect themselves. So there's a tension between the individual cadre and the party as a system. And it's that tension that I don't think that she can adequately resolve. He can move it more toward the party side. And I think she is all about strengthening the party. But can he really get rid of that tension? I doubt it. Just as a, I, I've always thought of factions like prison gangs. You've got to, like, I think most people think of a faction as this, as someone joining it so that they can sort of sail ahead. But I've always thought of these as sort of self-protection moves that you make in the same way. Day one, you want to join a gang very, very quickly. Well, if you think about Xi Jinping, I might even go so far as to argue that he was selected because he didn't seem to have a gang, but he sure has built one quickly and a very powerful one. Getting back to sort of Xi against Deng Xiaoping, Deng was for breaking up centralization, for regularizing 
Party movement. Remember how we talked about step-by-step promotion? You've got two people on the Politburo who were not even on the Central Committee. That's what, three steps in one move? And you have four others who were alternates on the Central Committee. So that's, well, that's three steps, um, four steps in the first case. That is six people, about a quarter of the Politburo, that Xi Jinping has simply lifted up from relative obscurity to a central role in the party. And how does this not hurt the party over time? If she can do it, so can somebody else. He centralized the power in the party, but now he complains that local cadres don't do anything. You know, he's curtailed intra-party democracy, so he's going to find out that silence is, as Deng Xiaoping put it, the most dangerous thing. You know, I think he is setting up the Chinese Communist Party, for some of its messiest days when he finally, at whatever time, goes to see Marx. Final question for prospective or current or younger analysts of Chinese politics, you know, folks in government, think tanks, academia. Studying Chinese politics is is getting more and more important. The, you know, building or flexing the the Sovietologist muscle is becoming important, but of course the system travel is getting harder to try and it's certainly going to be hard for the next couple of years. And I think a lot of folks are questioning even after that under this new Xi China, do they, do they want to go? So the system is becoming a, a bit harder to engage with and, and more opaque. What is your advice for aspiring analysts or current analysts on, on how they can build that muscle or, or, or other tr- tricks of the trade that uh, you might recommend? Boy, we need young Chinese analysts more than ever. And I worry that we're getting instant China analysts, people that just don't know their party history, haven't thought about how the party works. Uh, That's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, uh, as I hope it gives new analysts in particular, maybe some middle-aged and old analysts too, a chance to reflect on these 40 years and the problems it's faced and how it has faced these in terms of personnel in particular. As an outside analyst, you said Sovietologist, Pekingologist, whatever, read, read your Renman Rabao. This is where you get Xi Jinping's speeches. This will tell you a great deal about what he wants to do. He'll tell you about why he wants a so-called dual circulation economy. You know, this is where you find out about cracking down on Alibaba. Does, can China build a resilient economy with a very weak regulatory system? That's sort of the one of the questions that I think we need to ask going forward. Can a highly centralized party retain vitality at the lower levels? I think you have to look at how many people resigned from the party, or at least their party positions, after the 18th Party Congress. You know, is the party recruiting the best and the brightest? I think that we should be following personnel movements much more closely than we do. I think that's a a really essential part of seeing how this system works and how it's changing. I would put a lot of focus on understanding the party, how it works, how it's changing, the problems when it does things like this. So I hope I've laid out the problems and a younger generation of analysts will give me the answers. (laughs) Joe, thank you very much. This is really enjoyable. Uh, And the book is Rethinking Chinese Politics from Cambridge University Press. I really appreciate your time, really appreciate your insights, and and hope we can have a chance in person to, to continue the discussion. Well, I always enjoy talking about Chinese politics. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 